here at Calvary, and I love that man, and I love his wife. I said at their wedding that he married way above himself, and I still think so. So it's great to be with you. It's what a, what a great church and a church of wonderful history, continuing to do it when Dave started speaking about the school and just these kids getting a worldview that in a culture that is so crazy right now, where the culture is kind of stealing the hearts of children and families, I'm so happy that there's a place like, like Calvary. And it's great to be here. I've got some very special friends in this uh, room as well. Rick and Nadine, who in some ways are closer than family, and gosh, now I'm getting emotional being here. But I've got a question for you. What does the number 936 mean? Anybody want to try that? What does 936 mean? Anybody know? 936 is from the time a baby is born until the time a child is launched to adulthood. You got 936 weeks. That's it. Isn't that amazing? Some of you have... You know, younger children are going, you have to be kidding me. Yeah, it's 936 weeks, that's it. And I'm gonna talk today about generation to generation. And actually this works with, if you are a parent, a grandparent, a student, the youngest or the oldest in this place, because it all relates to us in a big way. This is my grandson, his name is James. He was named after me, there he is. And uh, this is, of course, the day he was born. He's now 499 weeks from launching. Um, I was with him at a, uh, at a birthday party, and he's not ready to launch just yet. He's a little wild. Um, but, you know, the day he was born, my heart got wrapped around his heart, and it's never, my life has never been the same. 936 weeks, if there's a baby. I saw a couple of babies out there when I first came in, and I thought, wow, they, those parents probably aren't thinking about the fact that time goes by as quick. Maybe they'd like to go a little quicker. Uh, this here is Emily. She's uh, five. Anybody here have a kind of a four, five, and six-year-old? There you go. Yeah. Okay, there's some people in here, obviously. There's some people out there that would have some four, five, and six-year-olds. Well, she only has 676 weeks, and she's launching. The next kid is Jeremy. He's 10. That means that Jeremy actually is over halfway through childhood, and he's going to be an adult in not that many years. Now, he doesn't act like an adult. He doesn't look like an adult. But soon, he's going to go in that direction, whether we like it or not, because time goes by fast. Of course, this is the lovely Ashley. She's 52 weeks from launching. She's a senior in high school, and she's going to launch. Now, again, when she launches, and she tells to her parents, but I'm an adult, treat me like an adult, parents are going, yeah, we're still paying for your cell phone. We're still, you know, helping you with college or whatever it might be. But again, Time goes by very fast. Now, I want to show you a video. It's a two-minute video that we helped create, and it's a video thinking about how fast time goes. Take a look at this. Thank you. 
Kind of a reminder that time goes by fast, eh? Got some folks who kind of tear up. I tear up when I see that because um, I have three daughters, so of course we had no hormones or drama in our life. Um, but now we have grandkids, and there's people in here who are thinking about that with their kids or with their grandkids, or there's even students who are going like, I have no idea how fast this is going to go. There's a scripture that I've been praying lately, and it's not going to come up on your screen, but you want to look in your, script, in your Bible sometime. It's Psalm 9012, and it says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I, I pray that prayer most every day. Teach me to number my days. I don't have as many days as I did when he got married, he doesn't have as many days as when they got married either. But the point being is that we're to make each day count to the best we can, and to gain a heart of wisdom is a, is a great way of doing that. So I have a question for you. How many of you know the name of your great, 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 great grandparents? Somebody raise your hand if you, if you know the name. Anybody? Pretty large auditorium. I don't see anybody. But the fact is, is that your great, 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 great grandparents influenced you. In fact, the Bible says this, talking about sin, but it could be so many other things too, that we inherit the sins of a previous generation to the third and fourth generation. The Bible talks a lot about being generational, and yeah, we inherit that. So I came from a family of, of alcoholism, okay? So I came from a dysfunctional family. And interestingly enough, that family, with their alcoholism, it just kind of is generational, right? I meet Kathy the first day of college. I was in the nerd section, back where you people are, yeah. And then the Ferris family right there, they're a little bit nerdy. Um, but anyway, there, I was back there, she was in the second row, and I said, see that girl down there to my new nerd friends, I'm going to take her out on a date. And they looked at her beauty, and they looked at me, and they, you can say it, yeah, they laughed. I think they said, yeah, right. And uh, anyway, one week after college graduation, we got married, okay? And two dysfunctional kids, me from the alcoholic home and, and Kathy from just kind of a crazy family. And uh, we thought it was going to be easy, and it was not easy. It was really complicated. And we realized that we had to make a decision as a family, that our family was going to go in a trajectory very much like the other families had been, or we are going to either repeat those sins or recover. And we made a decision, one, and we were just actually, interesting enough, we were living in Yorba Linda at the time in our life, and uh, we put a stake in the ground and said, we're going to recover. And I'm telling you, it's, it's not been perfect. It's not easy. You can ask our kids. They like Eric a lot more than they like me at times, especially during those junior high years. But the fact is, is that you can recover. And for Kathy and I, we would say that besides a relationship with Jesus, besides marrying each other, that this idea of, of recovering and changing the trajectory of a family. And just, the other, just yesterday, we were having a family birthday party. Our little Charlotte was six. And uh, the family's there, and, you know, Kathy and I were a part of it, and we brought, of course, the cupcakes and paid, apparently, for the cupcakes, because at 1, and the party started at 1.30, my daughter Christy said, cupcakes, we, we, you got to go pick up cupcakes. So that's how it kind of works around our house. And uh, we get to the park, and uh, everything's going, and we're sitting in these two beach chairs. And I just put my arm around Kathy, and I said, you know, it's not perfect, but it sure is good, right? And it, it reminds me of a, of a phrase and I know I should get to the scripture, but I've got to get to Disney first, Lilo and Stitch. This is my family. It may be good. It may be small, but it's still good. Yeah, it's still good. And I think that's how I feel about my family, but that's probably your family. And sometimes we come to church and we think everybody else has a better family or a more perfect family or a family that doesn't struggle with something. Every family struggles. And yet, 
I want to say to you that you can be the transitional generation. You can recover and not have to repeat that. And that literally means no matter who you are, what your age is, especially you younger people, you can change the trajectory. Now, again, no family is perfect. Remember a time when Christy and Kathy were into it. My daughter Christy was 17. She was getting ready to go off to Point Loma Nazarene University. And we were like, maybe they could go early because she was driving us nuts, right? And, uh, and she just totally went overboard with Kathy. And I'm, I'm being a passive-aggressive husband, father. I'm kind of in the other room going, oh, I wouldn't say that. Oh, no, no, it's kind of true, but I wouldn't say that, Christy. You know, kind of a thing. So finally, she totally just went overboard. And uh, so I said, Christy, you need to go to your room. And I said, I want to talk about your mom. I said, your mom is the person in my world who has grown the most. I've never seen a person grow like Kathy. She came from a very dysfunctional background, um, and uh, she's grown. So I said, so mom and I made a decision to recover and not repeat. And we never told you this. And uh, the truth is, is that the Bible says, as you know, Christy, because she knew all that stuff. She went to a Christian school like Dave's here. And, uh, and she knew the scripture, that you inherit the sins of a, of, of a previous generation. I said, mom has done that. Dad has done that. I didn't have to throw the family under the bus. She knew. And I said, so mom starts here and goes to here, but she carries the weight and Christy, you get to start somewhere in the middle, and you can move farther than mom or dad ever has, if you choose. And she was like, wow, I need to go apologize to, to mom. <laughs> and I wasn't yelling at her, I was just giving her a statement. And I want to say that to you, that if you feel like you've been you know, non, a, a not perfect family, and that you've struggled, or you came from a bad background, you don't have to say that way. Okay. Now, what I want to do today is I want to share with you a scripture that is the most often quoted scripture in the Bible. Now, so I want to ask you a question. What do you think is the most often quoted scripture in the Bible? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You're wrong. And it's hard to say that to you because you seem like a very nice person. <laughs> Somebody else who's not as nice as her that I can say no to. Say it real loud. Over here. The Beatitudes, Jesus' Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Awesome. No, you're wrong, and you're easier. I actually know the answer. I'm not some scholar here. Train up a child in Proverbs. Good scripture, but you're wrong. Go ahead. Now, you're not going to, you put your hand up, now you put it down, because. What is it? Oh, the serenity prayer. Okay. I'm not sure that's in the scripture, but it sure is awesome, okay? Um, we have that in our bathroom, so we... Now, we could go on and on. I see hands going up, but here it is. Are you ready for it? It's Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. I totally know this to be true. It's kind of a trick question because most of us don't know this. Here's why it's a trick question. Because every morning in an Orthodox Jewish home, they quote it. Every evening, they quote it. There is no doubt in anybody's mind that the first scripture Jesus Christ would have heard as a baby would have been the Shema, they call it, means to listen. And he heard that because that's what you do at birth. Typically, it's the mother, so I would imagine Mary held Jesus and she, in a beautiful way, it sounds so cool in Hebrew, um, kind of quoted the Shema. So I want to read the Shema to you, and I think it's the playbook for how we do families. Okay, and I think we've missed this because there's all kinds of ideas and many of you would have great ideas. You've done a great job. But the truth is, is that if we follow the Shema, that's the better way. And again, John 3, 16, uh, in Proverbs, train up a child. All those are great. Okay, so let's look at the scripture. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. Now that begins to make sense to you, but probably doesn't make sense that it's most often quoted until you started hearing. I mean, during COVID, rabbis, because they do a last rites, just like Catholics do, and they have a last rites, and, the, and they were panicky because they needed to say the Shema to these people. So they were doing it over the phone and putting the phone up to people in convalescent hospitals and things like that. It was crazy, okay? But what they're doing here is saying, we're putting a stake in the ground. We're going to live with fidelity and faithfulness to, to God, right? Then it goes on to say, these commandments that I give you today are to be written on your hearts. Impress them on your children, and so in other words, you live it and then you pass it on to your children. It's not just the church. In that day, it's not just the synagogue. It's parents and families pass it on their faith. That's the most effective way to do it. It even tells you how to do it. When it goes on, it says, well, you talk about it when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, they walked, we drive. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, which means place, put God or take God to work and then bind them on your foreheads, which means place God into your mind, develop a mindset of, of God. And then it also says, write them on the door frames of your gates. And so if you go to Israel, uh, how many of you here have been to Israel? Anybody in here? Oh, lots, my goodness, this is like the Israel church. Um, so anyway, when you go to Israel, even on your hotels, there's something called a mezuzah. You can Google me and look this up later. But inside every mezuzah, which is on the door frame, typically it's kind of slanted, it has the Shema. It's kind of their holy of holies. It's not our holy of holies, but it's kind of their holy of holies. So what does this teach us? It teaches us, number one, that we are to live with loyalty and faithfulness to God, fidelity to God, as much as we possibly can. It teaches us how we do it, how we transmit faith and love to our children. We live it and we pass it on. By the way, this works for grandparents too. Okay. In fact, I have read through the children's Bible with James three times. I read through the children's Bible with my three kids. Uh, never. Okay. So I'm more passionate about it today as an old guy than I was even then, right? So then it also teaches us not only transmission of faith and how we do that, but how we keep a constant mindfulness of the teachings in the presence of God. You do it when you're driving. You do it in the morning. You do it in the evening. You bring God into the home. So there's a study out right now that all of us as Christians must be depressed about. I'm deeply burdened by this. In fact, one of the main burdens of the organization I work with called Homeward, this is what, what we live with, and we carry that burden as, as we all do. 65% of kids who graduate from high school leave the faith for a while. They don't, many of them come back when they get married, when they make babies, things like that, but they're, they're gone. They're not in church, see. However, Quoting Barna again. You quoted Barna. So Barna and also a gentleman named Richard Ross from Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, do two studies. Didn't know they were doing the studies. They come up with the same answer. Listen to this. A 300% better, better chance that kids will stay in the faith if there are faith conversations in the home. It's that simple. It's not easy, but it's that simple. So homes where there were faith conversations, not preaching, not lecturing, but faith conversations, those kids tend to stay and others don't. Now, you know, that doesn't always work. I mean, you know, people have their own mindset, but that's, that's key and critical. So Jesus. Jesus was being tested all the time. He really ha had a ministry for only three years. Isn't that profound? That his ministry was only public for three years. But we come to the Gospels. And Jesus is being tested by the leaders in the synagogue and some of the political leaders. And they said this 
And this is a scripture we call the Jesus Creed, so we'll place that up. It's found in Matthew 22, uh, 36 and 40, if you want to follow along in your Bible. It says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? I mean, this was a test for Jesus. How was he going to answer it? And how he answered it would be important to these people because everybody pretty much had the same answer. Jesus said, look at it. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. They went, oh, well, I guess he's one of us because that's how all Jews and have all Jews have answered it from the time even before the writing of Scripture. There was an oral trans, uh, transition type of uh, thing, and that's what they said. This was it. So they went, oh, he's one of us. But then Jesus did something amazing, and he does this all the time. He pokes, he pokes at it. And so Jesus said this. He said, yeah, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Now, notice that the second is not in the Shema, which I just read in Deuteronomy. It's actually found in Leviticus 19.3. So what Jesus did is he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, because all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So actually what Jesus was doing is he was summarizing the law and the prophets by saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we call that the Jesus Creed. So if you don't feel comfortable with the Shema for some reason, the Jesus Creed will be just fine. But we're called to live our lives and our families with that piece of Scripture in mind. And that probably got him in trouble. See, it's beautiful. And we think it's beautiful as Christians. But again, he changed the Shema. And that was Holy, holy of Holies. One of the reasons why they kept, you know, wanting to, well, kill him was because he was one who was always pushing the limits. This is God, the Son of God. And yet, if we could live by that, it would be incredible. Well, how do we live by that? So I want, to find, I want to finish this off by just simply saying, this is how we live by it, okay? We live with those words by doing a couple of things. One is we have to understand this, and this is good for everybody who's in this room. Discipleship happens intentionally, and discipleship happens at home. Now, does discipleship happen with Dave and, and the school here? Yeah, it does. Does discipleship happen with your incredible children's ministry and your youth ministry? Of course it does. But discipleship is more profound at home. Who's the most important influence in a kid's life? So says secular research. Who, anybody know? Mom. By far. Dads, we take a distant second. We need to kind of like strengthen it here. Then grandma and grandpa. Notice the church hasn't been mentioned yet aunts and uncles, friends and peers, then the church. That doesn't mean that the church doesn't have a profound influence with kids, and the church had a profound influence on me because I grew up in a non-Christian home, but for families to succeed, it's important for us to take this seriously because it's our job, our burden, our joy to pass on faith from generation to generation. So we've got to be intentional about this, and that's, you know, that's what, the, what the Bible oftentimes says. The scripture for discipleship, which is just definition of discipleship, says, in the things that you have heard me say, it's going to come up, uh, in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others also. So that's the passing on of faith. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. So we tried this in our house, and our, our, uh, our daughter, Becca, she's our middle child with an emphasis on middle, um, she's kind of the star of the show, but I had been doing family devotions with our family. So we, Kathy and I weren't raised in a Christian home, so we didn't know how to do that. And so then we heard people do family devotions. Oh, we'll try that. And uh, 
so I would lead it. At that point, I was speaking to about a quarter of a million students a year. I was traveling, doing a lot of that kind of work. So I go, you know, I can handle my three kids. They were bored stiff. They hated it. They'd go, family devotions, no, no, you know. And I would, like, teach them, and I would go, you know, in the Greek it means this, and, you know, they'd roll their eyes, and, you know, I want Eric, you know, I don't want to hang out. So anyway, uh, finally, Kathy one day said, hey, Jim, no offense to you, but it's not working. And I go, well, great, passive-aggressive, fine, then you do it. She goes, I will. Her background is uh, a master's in early childhood, and she knows how to teach, and, you know, I was killing it. Uh, killing it, not good, killing it bad. So she goes, that night, she doesn't use the family diva word, because that's a dirty word in our family. And so she goes, hey, we're going to have a play. Do you guys want to do a play? They're all hams. Sure. And she comes up the stairs with a big uh, jug of red vines and some chocolate. And I'm like, that's cheating. Jesus didn't use chocolate when he taught the Sermon on the Mount. So she comes walking up, and she has a Bible story book, and she goes, okay, girls, we're going to just act out a Bible story tonight, and uh, you guys can have some chocolate and red vines if you want. And I'm like, that is cheating. You know, I could have done that. So they put Christy in charge because she's the oldest, so she turns the book to the page number one. It's the story of Adam and Eve, and she goes, we'll do this one. I said, okay, great. So then they get an argument, which I was kind of happy about. Okay, they got in an argument because nobody wanted to be Adam because he's a boy and they're girls, and this was a nine, nine, seven, and five-year-old, so they, you know, boys still had cooties and they didn't like boys. So nobody wanted to be Adam. And finally I said, Christy, you're the oldest. You have to be Adam. She said, can I draw a mustache? Yes, you can. You, I'm sure Adam had a mustache. Right, Eric? He had a mustache. Okay. And uh, so she actually put on a mustache later with a permanent marker, and that's another story that we won't talk about here in our family because going to school the next day, we're still rubbing it off, and she's crying. You know, it was not great, okay? So she goes off to the soundproof booth, which is our bedroom, Kathy's mine, and uh, then the two little girls, they, they're talking, and uh, they want to be Eve because they'd already said that I had to be the snake because they didn't want to be the snake. He was the bad guy in the story. So now I want to apologize to your your lead pastor here, okay? Because theologically, this is not correct, but I was desperate, okay? So I said, okay, Becca, you are Eve, and Heidi, you are Yvette, Eve's little sister. <laughs> Kathy whispers, Eve didn't have a little sister. And I go, she does now. <laughs> so she go, but they go over, and Kathy's like, as I'm eating chocolate, what, what are they gonna do? I mean, you know, Eve, she's all worried about Yvette. And I said, they'll figure out something. So Christy shows up in a flowered Hawaiian shirt with a hat on because I always keep a hat from my, you know, bald head here from the, uh, you know, the, actually the skin cancer that I get. And so she comes in with this ridiculous mustache, flowered shirt, not sure if there's much underneath it. And I said, well, Christy, why are you dressed like that? And she goes like, Dad, it's the Garden of Eden. And in her mind, Garden of Eden and Hawaii are kind of the same, so there she is. I go, well, that makes sense. <laughs> then the five-year-old, so we're skipping Becca for a minute, the five-year-old comes in, and she is in a hula outfit. She was five, but this was her three-year-old ABC store from Honolulu, Hawaii grass skirt. She couldn't really hardly tie it, but you could see her pink panties. And then she had these two coconuts just dangling there. And uh, so the little five-year-old walks by. I, I tried to place them strategically where you would place them, not that they were going to hold for her. And uh, now she has one on her shoulder and one even lower. And she goes, is it time? And I go, time for what? She goes, I'm supposed to do a hula. I'm like, yeah, I think in the Bible they did hula, sure. 
So she kind of does this, everybody loves a hooky lao, and she does this little hula, and Kathy and I clap for her, and then she goes and sits down. She's just thrilled that she got to be in the Bible story, right? Then Becca walks in, and she is our defensive one anyway, but she has no clothes on. She might have had one sock, but she's stark naked. She's seven, and she just kind of has her hand like this. And uh, I said, well, tell us about what you're not wearing. Always the best at Scripture, she goes, it says she was naked. She didn't have any clothes on. I'm like, right. And I'm looking, at least that Eve had leaves strategically placed on her body, you know, in the picture of the children's book. I kind of took a deep breath and said, okay, you can act this out without any clothes on, but if they ever do the story of Adam and Eve at church, you need to have clothes, okay? <laughs> and you know what? It changed the way we started doing family devos. They were fun. They were 20 minutes. Keep it short and simple. That stands for kiss. Keep it short and simple. Use chocolate if you will. See what I'm saying? And, what, and, and that changed things. So today I found that that's an important way to get my, my um, grandkids moving. It's fun things like that. It doesn't have to be like this heavy-duty preaching thing, but it became a regular process, see? So you're concerned about the culture. If you're not concerned about the culture, probably something's wrong with you. So if you're concerned about the culture, and I'm saying that discipleship happens intentionally and from home, yeah, we teach them scripture, but we also have to teach them morals and values, and it's our job to do that. Why are we always whining about what they're doing out in the secular world? What do you expect? So if you're the most important influence, then why don't we talk to them about morals and values? I'll talk a little bit about this on the understanding of your teenager. And whoever said it, I think it was, it was Eric who said, he's right. If you have younger kids, be there. And if you're a grandparent, be there, see. But let's talk about sex ed, okay? We're all worried about what's going on in the sexual world. And I'm worried, it's confusing. But how many of you, personal question, received good, positive, healthy, value-centered sex education when you were growing up from your parents. Put your hands up. Good, right there, one, two, cool. Three, <laughs> four, Lauren, way to go. Well, your parents, way to go. You probably didn't have anything to do with it, but yeah, way to go, parents. Erica's gonna be doing a series on sex ed for adults. This place is in trouble, dude. They didn't, you know, to way nobody put their hands up. But here's the deal, here's why I did this. Because the more positive, value-centered sex education, research tells us that kids have from home, the less promiscuous they'll be and the less confused they'll be. Did you hear that? Are the questions and the conversations going to be awkward? You better believe it. But it's our job to do that. It's our job to teach them sexual integrity. We'll talk about this tonight, but that's our job. And so we take the lead at teaching morals and values. That's important for us, see. And when you take the lead of, of doing that, then things change with kids. Does it make it perfect? No, but it sure helps. The scripture that I'm thinking about right now is a scripture from the book of Proverbs, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. And we decided that was something we were gonna try to teach our kids. How do we teach them? That's not just a scripture on sexuality. It's a scripture on faith and, and money and a bazillion things. But how do you guard your heart? And we have a generation of kids who don't know how to guard their heart, and that's partly our issue because we haven't been having those conversations. Now I write books on this stuff, and my daughter said, Dad was so awkward, his bald head sweat, his ears turned red, he stuttered. I get it. But we still have to do that, see. 
So discipleship happens intentionally and it happens from home, but it also happens when parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, when they lead. Way too many times in the family today, we have the 12-year-old strong-willed child who's leading the family. No, that doesn't work. How do you lead as a parent? How do you lead as a grandparent? Well, I think you lead, number one, with integrity. I think we lead with integrity. And integrity doesn't mean perfection. Integrity, integrity means honesty and, and with authenticity. Okay? Uh, the Bible says that whoever walks in integrity walks securely. And I'm convinced that if you are a person of integrity, that your kids will also be secure because they live out through your integrity. Okay? And that's not just cheating on taxes. That's doing life. And, you know, for Kathy and I, one of our big integrity things, because, you know, we're now at 49 years in our marriage, but, um, you know, those first years were tough. We tell people at marriage conferences that we have a high-maintenance marriage. Okay? And we do. And I think the least developed area of intimacy for us, this is not, I'm not turning this into a marriage talk, I'm just simply saying for us when it comes to integrity, is, is spiritual intimacy. Physical intimacy, no sweat. Emotional intimacy, better for Kathy than for me, but, you know, still got to work on that. But it was spiritual intimacy. So we made a commitment many, many years ago to spend 20 minutes a week just coming together. And we ended up writing a book called Closer. Closer has been the, the most popular marriage devotional in the world for a long time. And, and you don't have to buy the book because nobody ever asks, tells me, they write me all the time about it, but they never say it was the content. What they say is it was the 20 minutes a week, see. And you do that over a time period and that's the discipline of it. So that's integrity. I don't know what your integrity issue is, but that's my integrity issue is my marriage, keep my marriage strong, see. Also, we lead with margin. I think one of the biggest problems in America is this breathless pace in which we live our lives. Somebody said to me when I graduated from Princeton years ago, and they said, Jim, we missed you at graduation. I wasn't going to go to graduation. I was going on to work in youth ministry here in Southern California. And then they said, got a verse or got a story for you. If the, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. I talked to them about it on the day of their installation um, here from this, from this place right here. So, a man named John Mark Comer, who's a great thinker and a great writer and a great author, pastor, he says, hurry is violence to your soul. And is it possible that we've been looking at busyness wrong? We live here in Southern California and we're busier than all get out. But I want to tell you something. Oftentimes, busy people are broken people. I'm not saying that you all move to Wyoming and live in a commune, but I'm saying busy people are broken people. Busy families sometimes, overly busy families. So what we've got here is we are overcommitted and underconnected, see. And so we, we can't live our lives well with margin. And it's, it's a discipline. Paul said to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And part of, for me, the discipline for the purpose of godliness is just not racking my body 24-7, 365. Kathy used to say, I haven't heard her say it lately, probably still thinks it, you know, we have a Messiah, Jim. He's doing very well. Don't replace him. See? There are three questions that I ask, and I can always tell if I'm doing well in the margin department by the way I answer these questions. Number one is, do I like the person I'm becoming? If you're too busy and you're not taking care of your own soul, then you typically don't like the person you're becoming. That's me when I'm in that place. Secondly, 
I kind of give it two ways, but for me, is, is the work of God I'm doing destroying the work of God in me? Or in other words, is my heart for God growing or shrinking? And when I'm so busy, my heart for God is shrinking. I need to take care of my own soul, and I'm not doing it because I'm so busy doing everything else with my family and my work and everything else. And the last one is, is am I only giving my family my emotional scraps? Am I only giving Kathy my emotional scraps? Why do I do that? I don't do that for you. I'm up for you. I'm ready. Let's go. I'll you know, be in relationship, and then I come home, and I'm a dud. Well, that's because I haven't put margin into my life. I spoke for an organization for years called Promise Keepers, and some of you may know it. It's a men's ministry, and uh, we'd be in, they did stadiums, arenas. I was kind of in the re- arena side. And I was speaking at the, actually at a stadium, I was speaking at Diamondback Stadium at a pastor's conference, the last one that they did years ago. <clears throat> and I was sitting in the back, and I was going to come on to talk to pastors about families because pastors have their same issues. And I was sitting with a man named Jack Hayford, who was our our master of ceremonies. We called him the pastor of ceremonies. And Jack is like a mentor to me, and Jack has passed away this last year. It's been a year. And I always ask people this. Like, he, Jack is, is oh my goodness, he was the pastor of a mega church. He was uh, the, the president of a, univer- of a college, a Christian college. He was the head of his denomination. Uh, one of these guys who's just been amazing. Bob Shank is in this room right now, and I know he's that same man. I mean, he is the influence that that man has had. It's amazing. So I'm sitting, and I would say it to Bob. But here's what I said to Jack. I said, Jack, what is your leadership, what is the secret to your leadership success? And he thought about it for a minute. The band is playing. I'm getting ready to go on, and I'm not focusing on my message now. I'm just focusing on that question. And he said, you know, Jim, I had to say no to good things to say yes to the most important things. Jack, what what are the most important things? He said, that would be my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife, his wife died about five years ago. Uh, my relationship with my kids, and he named all of his kids. My relationship with my grandkids, and he named all of his grandkids. He said, you know, I have time to do some other stuff. Other stuff? You're like leading a major denomination. You're doing all these other things. But what he said to me rocked me. I had to say no to good things to say yes to the most important things. That's a person who knows how to live that life with margin. And we do better in our families when there's margin. And again, we, have to, we, we aren't going to move. We have to figure out how to do it here and now in the midst of a pretty busy, crazy culture. Margin. And so I think that's what we do. Discipleship and leader, means leadership in the home, and that's with margin. And also, we lead with the eternal perspective. So you can do family with God or without God. And even when we're trying to do it with God, we mess it up all the time. My dad taught me that. I told you my dad was an alcoholic, and, you know, I wasn't all that close, and he did a very courageous thing. You know, in his 70s, early 70s, he quit drinking. And uh, I, had a re- I always had a relationship with him. He was, a, he was a functioning alcoholic, so he wasn't this horrible, terrible guy. But I wasn't all that close with him because alcoholics don't do intimacy, which means connection. And then we got close. And he had fallen in his walker, and he, was in a, he had broke his hip, and they fixed his hip, but they said, Bob, if you can't get up... We're going to send you to convalescent hospital, but if you can't get up, you're going to die of pneumonia or something like that. And yeah, he did. So he had hospice. He didn't have much to live. A woman comes in and says, it's time for physical therapy. And I was like, he's not ready for, th- he doesn't do physical therapy. He's got a bedpan there. And uh, so my dad tried to get up, and when he did, he kind of started to slip. And so I went over to, to hold his shoulder, and uh, she said, Bob, and she's looking at the dill, and she says, oh, you can't get it. Oh, you know, probably reads hospice later. 
And then she's kind of awkward, so she kind of goes, you two look alike. And uh, yeah, we had the same hairdo. I look just like my dad. And um, he said, this is my son, Jim. And I've got three other sons, and I'm proud of all of them. And then he named them Bob, Bill, Ron, and Jim. And my eyes kind of welled up with tears because I, I understand. I'm the youngest. Any youngest here? Eric, you're the youngest, I know. So we all think we're the best children, and, you know, our parents told us we were, kind of. So I assumed he would think I was good, but my other brothers, they were goofballs. And then I thought, how like God that he said he's proud of all of us. And then he said to this woman, I'm looking forward to being with Jesus in heaven soon. I think I'm going there quite soon. I'm like, oh, boy. And this woman's eyes kind of well up. He said, I have no regrets. And I went, he has no regrets. Gosh, I, I could name some of his regrets for him. <laughs> and so she left, and now it's just Dad and me. And he didn't hear well, so I kind of get real close to him. I said, Dad, you, you said you were proud of all. I was going to give him a chance to throw my brothers under the bus now that the lady wasn't there. So you, you said you had, I mean, you know, you're proud of all of us. He said, Jimmy, I am so proud of you and Bob and Ron and Bill. Again, I went, how like God? Do you know that God is proud of you? Do you know that, that God is proud of you? Have you done it perfectly? Heck no. But he's got a picture of you in his wallet, and he's showing it off. And then I said, Dad, you, you said you had no regrets. Now, he's become my spiritual mentor in some ways. And I go, you said you had no regrets. By the way, he became a Christian during that time. And he said, well, this is more your business than mine, which I love, that he, he calls ministry a business, but he didn't get it. He said, this is more your business than mine, but didn't you tell me that if you believe in Jesus and that Jesus was raised from the dead, he was quoting Romans 10, 9, he didn't know that, that you'd be saved? And so I'm saved. And then he kind of had a question, like, right? <laughs> I went, yes, Dad. He said, well, then why would I have regrets? I'm going to be with Jesus then. Wow. There's a woman named Elizabeth Cooper Ross who studied death and dying. Not a Christian. But she said at the end of people's lives, they think about two things, a right relationship with God and a right relationship with family. And my dad taught me that. He taught me to live my life with an eternal perspective, but also to parent and also to do marriage from an eternal perspective, which means my goal is to have a right relationship with God and right relationship with my family. Now, as we approach communion, I would suggest that that would be something you make sure you want to get right, a right relationship with God and a right relationship with your family. Almighty God, thank you for these men and women. Bless them. Bless Calvary. Thank you so much for Eric and the rest of the staff and their leadership to help families succeed. And I pray now that as we approach the communion table, Lord, that you would help us to get our hearts right with you. And really, if there's something that's burdening our heart about our family, that we could get our hearts right with our family as well. We ask for your help, because we can't do it on our own. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Thanks. Thank you, Jim. Sure.